You're listening to a teaching series by Cross Culture Church of Christ. If you'd like any more information about our church, head to crossculture.net.au. Feel free to share this podcast with others, but please don't alter the content in any way. We hope you enjoy it. Privilege to be able to bring today's message to you as we continue our series on the Sermon of on the Mount, which is one of, of course, uh, probably the most well-known passages in the Bible, the sermon that Jesus gives from chapters 5 to 7. He sat down on a lovely little place like this out in the wilderness. This is overlooking the Sea of Galilee, very similar to where Jesus would have been when he gave this sermon to his disciples and also to a lot of people who were hoping to be his disciples or were considering becoming his disciples And so they wanted to listen to what he said and consider what it really meant to follow him. Last week, Pastor Devin uh, started off the the sermon of the series by talking through the Beatitudes, the blessing sayings. And what we looked at last week was the fact that, that following Jesus and living as his disciples was very different to how people were, uh, what people were expecting or anticipating particularly around, around the area of blessing, of what it meant to be favoured or blessed by God. So we heard last week of these different qualities like being poor in spirit, being humble means you're favoured by God, or being meek, being gentle in how you treat other people. That's what it really means to be blessed, rather than being wealthy or powerful or ambitious. How many um, guys have you heard this year say, I'm hoping to be, um, by the end of the year, I'm hoping to be a little less strong. I'm hoping to be able to lift less weight. That's what I'm really looking forward to this year. I hope by the end of 2020, um, my muscles are slightly smaller. It's not really what people are aspiring to. And and when, when Jesus got up and said, you know, blessed are the meek, they get to inherit the earth. That is, blessed are those who are gentle in how they treat other people and kind to them. It's not really what people want to hear. I want to hear, blessed are the ambitious and the powerful. They're the ones that get the prize. But Jesus flips everything on its head and says, actually, the values of the kingdom of God are different and opposite to the world. And as he's finishing up that passage and just about to head into these metaphors about salt and light, he says this, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of following me. You're blessed if this happens. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven, for that's how they treated the prophets who were before you. This is the backdrop, the context of these metaphors of salt and light. Saying you're blessed when, when the majority, when the group gathers around you and says you're a loser you're an idiot or you're foolish for believing what you believe, right? And it excludes you. That's when you're blessed. That's when you're favoured. And then he says, you guys are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. There's going to be a lot of pressure on you. But don't lose your saltiness and don't put out that light because this is the purpose for which I've made you my disciple. So what does Jesus mean by these little metaphors? These metaphors are 
are a bit of a bridge in his whole sermon. They're a little bit of a, a little uh, hop to be able to get, a, get into the specifics. He starts off with this opening address of the Beatitudes, and then he gives these metaphors to help you understand the purpose for which he's made you his disciple. You're the salt of the earth. Well, I love salt. Don't you <laughs> love salt? Actual fact, uh, we, we, we need salt. We do need salt. I know there's a lot of warnings about having too much salt. That's a problem. Actually, all living things need some salt to be able to live. Our cells break down if we don't have enough salt. Now, sometimes when you're at McDonald's, again, I'm going to be influencing people's lunch today, um, but sometimes you get fries, you get the chips, and have you ever found that they've, they've not put enough salt on them? It's very rare, but sometimes there's not enough salt. And it's really, really frustrating. And so you go back to the counter and you ask them to put more salt on your chips or to get a little packet of salt. And they can give you a little bit of extra salt. Now, of course, if the person behind the counter handed you a little bag of sugar and said, here's your salt, put that on your chips. Well, you'd be, you'd be outraged. I don't want to put sugar on my chips. That's wrong. Right? No one puts sugar on chips. Does anyone put sugar on chips here? Don't put your hand up. You'll be ostracized. It's weird. You'll be rightly persecuted. Right? You don't put sugar on chips. You put salt. Right? And so I'd be upset if I went there and I got sugar. Right? I'd be upset if I got something that was a fraud or fake. I, I want real salt. No matter how much the girl tried to tell me it was salt, if it was sugar, I'd know this is not salt. It tastes wrong. Something's not right about this. And that's what Jesus is saying with his disciples. If you say that you're my disciple, but you don't embody any of the qualities and characteristics I've just outlined, well, then you're not really salt. You're not really my disciple. You're a fraud, a fake. You have to live out my character, my teaching. You're the salt of the earth. Right? You need to be genuine. If you lose your saltiness, it's foolish. Actually, the word here, where it says it's lost its taste, where it says it's become tasteless, it's actually the word, the Greek word moros, comes from uh, the word for fool. So being foolish was actually also used to refer to tastelessness. So you can see the play on words that Jesus is using here. In fact, this is the word, this is where we get our word moron from, moronic. It means fool. So what he's actually saying here, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes foolish, right, that's another way of interpreting it. Typically, this word was used to refer to foolishness. And foolishness for the first century Jewish person was not just about being silly or being unwise. It was also about being immoral. To be a fool was to be an immoral person, okay? not just to lack wisdom or insight. So you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes foolish or immoral, how does its saltiness be restored? It's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's lost its purpose. If the disciple of Jesus lives immorally or in, in opposite to what Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes, and in the Sermon on the Mount, well, it's, it's foolishness. It's become pointless. If you're a disciple of Jesus, but you're not humble, you're not kind to other people, 
You're not merciful. You don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're not pure. You're not a peacemaker. Instead, you create conflict between people. Well, it's no good. It's pointless. It's missing the point of why he's made you his disciple. See, salt is valuable to us, and it was also very valuable, or very valuable to the, in the ancient world. In fact, it was a little more valuable than probably what it is to us today. It was very hard to produce salt. In fact, all, for most of history, salt has been quite a precious substance. In fact, often there's um, been taxes on salt. In fact, in India, this is part of what Mahatma Gandhi was protesting against. The salt tax in India was one of the things that led to him uh, leading this, um, I guess, rebelling, rebelling against what Britain had imposed upon them. Britain had imposed all these laws where they weren't even allowed to produce their own salt. There was a tax on salt produced by British India Company, and that allowed England to import their salt and sell theirs for a good price uh, and make more money. So part of what Mahatma Gandhi did was he went through place to place and he'd get down on the ground and he would produce his own salt, breaking the law in protest for these immoral rules. See, for Roman soldiers as well, they were often paid in salt. So you can see that Jesus is actually saying, you're the salt of the earth. It's more than just saying you're the flavor of the earth or you're the preserving influence. You're also very precious and very valuable to the world. In fact, we get the word soldier and salary. These words, soldier and salary, come from Latin root words meaning salt. That's where they, they're the people who work for salt. There you go, a little bit of trivia for you today. Okay, how would you like to be paid in salt, everyone? Yeah, not much, okay? Uh, but, but, but salt was of great value and it was very precious. And it had these other these qualities as well, preserving food, adding flavor, healing. So you can see these metaphors building up. And Jesus is saying a lot in this little, little metaphor that he's giving us. In the New Testament and in Jewish writing, salt was often connected with wisdom, with being able to speak wisdom and truth into someone's life and often in connection to a relationship. So you see the other ways that the New Testament uses the metaphor. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. Colossians 4, 6. In Mark's gospel, when Jesus makes this statement, he adds this little sentence on the end. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So you can see how the Bible uses this metaphor Salt refers to wisdom, the wisdom to act rightly in relationships with other people. We're the salt of the earth. We're to bring God's wisdom, flavor, and truth into the world. Exactly the same for Israel as well. Actually, how we're meant to live as disciples of Jesus now, bringing salt and goodness into the world, was exactly what Israel was meant to do. Deuteronomy 4.6, keep the commandments and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, that is the nations of the world, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So it was for people who, who look out, they look in and they see the way people treat each other with wisdom, how they act. And they think, wow, wow, I want to be a part of that. I'm interested in that. I want to know more about it. You know what the at the bar, sometimes you go to a bar and there's those free salted peanuts. You know that? And you're eating them and you think, wow, this is so good. They give me, I'm getting so much free stuff. <laughs> I showed them. But do you know what, why they're there? 
They're there to make you thirsty so that you buy more drinks. See, you've been, you've been had. You thought you were getting something. You think, wow, this is so good to get this free stuff. <laughs> I outsmarted them. No, they outsmarted you because now you want to drink more. You want to buy more drinks. Right? That's what they're there for. And Christians as the salt of the earth are meant to make people thirsty for God, make people want to know God, know more about him because of our wisdom, because of how we treat people with kindness and mercy and graciousness. If that's not there, then people aren't going to be thirsty. So this first point on the backdrop of that statement, that little disclaimer Jesus makes where he says, people are going to persecute you on account of me. He makes that disclaimer and then he says, basically, don't withdraw from the world. Don't cease to be salt. It's one of his points here, right? Don't hide who you really are. How do we withdraw from the world as disciples of Jesus? Well, one, one example might be that we have no relationships other than the Christians in our lives, that we have no non-Christian friendships. We're not a part of other people's lives. Do not withdraw from the world, but instead we're meant to be present and helping. One of these things that Sonny mentioned earlier, that evangelism starts with asking, how are you? Right? Listening to the story that the world wants to taste us, to tell us. I thought that was a really great way to put it. Okay, so we're meant to be a part of the world. Don't withdraw from the world. The second point he makes from this metaphor is that it's pointless if we bear the label Christian in word or name only. We must also demonstrate the actions and character of a disciple, those things that Jesus mentions in this sermon and all through Scripture. We're meant to bear the actions and character as well as the word and the label. Have you ever heard the expression nominal Christian? Nominal Christian? What that means is Christian in name only. Right? To be a nominal Christian is to say, I am a Christian, but to not bear any of the qualities or character that Jesus is talking about. To be a Christian in name only, that's pointless. Because Jesus has worked in our lives so that we can bring goodness and truth to others. He goes on and develops the analogy. He's really making the same point by both metaphors. He develops it. You're the salt of the earth. You're to be a preserving influence of wisdom and goodness in the world. And you're also the light. That is, you're meant to illuminate the pathway to God. You're meant to help people see who God is, who Jesus is, and illuminate the path to him. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. This analogy of the city built up on a hill is actually also to do with light. It's also a reference to light. Because for ancient cities, at nighttime, they were still lit up by lights all throughout the city, lots of little lights coming together to make it really easy to see where the city was. So if you're traveling at night and you're out in the dark and you're alone, you're looking for, for a place of refuge, you can look and you can see, ah, I see that city up on a hill, I see the lights. I can go and stay there, I can get refuge. Like you're driving into town late at night and you see the big motel sign and you go, there's somewhere to stay. Now, you don't stay there, of course. You go to an Airbnb, right? We don't like staying in motels. But uh, the point is there. You see, there it is. I know I can stay there. There's a big light, right? And the collective little lights of the church are meant to illuminate the path and make God visible to the world. I remember once being with my friends out hiking in the bush at night, and we got lost. And as we were wandering around and getting a little more nervous as we're lost out in the dark in the bush hiking, and our friends were obviously looking for us. We had no reception. We retraced our steps and we went back 
along the path we'd taken. And as we're walking along, we finally saw over a hill these flickers of orange lights. And we're like, that's got to be the way. Yes, we found, we found our way back. And then as we got closer, yes, we saw a campsite. We found a group of people. And they're sitting around a fire talking. So we came and we said, oh, hey, we're, uh, everything's cool. We're not lost. <laughs> no, no, we said we're, we're a little lost and we need some help. And they said, oh, your friends actually came looking for you. And they're going to come back this way. So stay here and then we'll wait for them and they'll come back and they'll get you. And that's what the church is meant to be like, the light of the world, right? That we're out there, it's dark, people are alone. They see the light, they're drawn to the warmth, the fire, the light, and they can come and talk to us and we can say, yeah, there's a God who's been looking for you. He's coming back, right? Let's wait here together for this God. We're a city meant to be set on a hill with the light of the world. Children of God shining like bright lights in the world full of crooked and perverse people. That's how the church is meant to be and the disciples of Jesus are meant to be. Well, how terrible if, if the church, if the Christians end up being the crooked and perverse people. How terrible if we're the, the ones that make things darker rather than lighter. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole, all, everyone in the house. And to understand this metaphor better, it wasn't an electric lamp. If you put a basket over an electric light globe, it's not going to put it out, it'll just get warm under there, it'll hide the light. But if you're using an oil lamp, it'll go out. Most likely it'll snuff it out, it'll run out oxygen. Okay, so it's a double meaning here. Not only is it foolish or silly to light a lamp and then cover it so the light doesn't do anything, it's also going to kill it to do that. It's going to snuff it out. So again, we don't want to snuff out the light that God has given us to show the world. The same thing was for Israel. What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all the law that I set before you today? In this chapter in Deuteronomy 4, God goes on about how he made Israel to be a light to the nations, to illuminate the pathway to God. Same purpose for them is the same purpose for us. So the follower of Christ is meant to light the way to God through how we live, through our behavior, through our character, not just our words, through our treatment of other people through our goodness, through being good. A good church makes God visible to the world and that people can see how we treat each other, how we care for each other, and we can explain to them that we are trying to live like our good, loving God. We want to love each other because God is loving. We forgive each other because God is forgiving. We show mercy to people because God's shown me mercy. We're gentle, we're, we're gentle towards people because God has been gentle to us. Jesus describes himself as being meek. Not that, he's, not that he's weak, but that he's powerful, but he controls his power and he's kind to others. He's meek. And so at church, we're gentle and kind, even if we are powerful, because God is like that. A good church makes God visible to the world. But of course, the opposite is also true. The poor character and moral failures of the church makes God less visible and less attractive to the world. Okay, we can't have it both ways. We can't have it that our good actions have an impact that makes God attractive to the world 
but that think that our bad actions won't have the opposite effect. And we know this is true because we've seen it play out, haven't we? We've seen it play out time and time again. The failures of the church make people question whether or not God is good. In fact, many people say, I'm okay with Jesus, but I'm just not okay with the church. And so we see how much is at stake here for each one of us to really understand what Jesus is asking of us by really getting in to those blessing sayings, those beatitudes and his teaching. As he says at the end of this sermon, let's not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23, 13 says, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And this is what's at stake with our behavior as Christians. We need to be good. Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect. With God's help, we need to be good so that our witness stands up, so that our words actually uh, really are, um, you know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) God has worked in your life so that you can bring good to other people's lives, not just good, also the message of the gospel, that these things go together, goodness and the message of God's truth and hope. See, actually, you might be thinking, what does this mean we have to be perfect or that people, people are going to uh, re- reject the message of, of the gospel if, if we don't live perfectly moral lives? That's not actually the case because actually most people are, are actually quite realistic and they know that no one's perfect. I think most people out there kind of know that no one's perfect. No one lives a perfect life. But what they're looking for in, in response to that is, is humility. And that's one of the traits that Jesus talking about here, the humility to acknowledge that we're not perfect, that we fail. And so when we don't live up to a perfect standard, the character of a disciple of Jesus is to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I'm not perfect. Only God is perfect. I'm sorry for what I've done. It's not that we have to be perfect to be able to share the good news with others. God has worked in our life. We can bring good to others, both the message and our goodness but the humility to admit when we've not done the right thing. Jesus says, let your good works shine, shine forth to the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is, heaven, who is in heaven. Two points on this verse. The purpose of being good is to lead people into relationship with their maker, not to make the world a perfect place. This is the motivation that we've got to get right So again, we can think, well, what's the point of being good when we can't solve all the problems out there? We can't fix all these things, right? We can't do that. Well, the purpose of being good is to lead people into relationship with their maker, not to make a perfect place. And that's what's at stake. For the church, not to be good, not to be kind, not to be caring, is to put a barrier between people and their maker. But God wants us to do this so that people are drawn to their creator, drawn to their maker. That's our purpose in being good in the world. Secondly, the underlying motive for goodness is to please God rather than to win public favor in general. So as followers of Jesus, we don't necessarily 
have to look at ourselves or understand ourselves based purely on what people outside the church are saying about us. Our goal is not simply to win public approval or to have some good articles written up about us in the paper. In actual fact, people hate that kind of attitude towards goodness. See, that's why people question politicians and we're uncertain and we're sceptical because we see them changing what they do in order to receive that public favour, that public approval. See, we don't want to define good, and people outside the church as well don't want to define goodness simply by popularity vote. People actually want real goodness. And in the church, what we're to do is to try and understand goodness according to God's character, what he says in his word. That's our standard, our reference point. So we don't have to sit back and go, well, how can we have a great reputation in our city? Or how can we go out and, and make cross-culture look really good in Melbourne so people will like us and like God? That's not necessarily our starting point. Our starting point is with the character of God, the character of Jesus, understanding what goodness really is and then making it our, our aim to live out that goodness in the world because it pleases God. And then we'll see what comes from that. So our underlying motive for goodness is to please God rather to win public favour in general. Four more little practical things that we're going to look at uh, before we wrap up today. Firstly, each of us as followers of Christ want to grow in the character of a disciple by studying and meditating on the specifics of that character. I'll give you an example. Perhaps, perhaps being more meek this year could be one of the things that you set out to do across 2020. And that will mean understanding what the Bible means by meekness. See, each of the blessings in the Beatitudes is really referencing character and qualities and stories in the Old Testament. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, study and meditate on that sentence and do a word study on it over the next few weeks and you'll see that it's attached to widows and orphans and the vulnerable in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying those who are hungering and thirsting for oppressed people to experience justice and goodness, those people are going to be blessed and filled in the long run. Okay? So part of growing in the character of a disciple is to study the specifics, the specific things that Jesus says and then looking at what they mean in Scripture so that we can actually do them. So we understand that meekness is referring to gentleness and how we treat others. Now I can go and apply it. Secondly, embed in your life a habit of helping others as a basic principle because Jesus sums up all these teaching and the teaching of the Old Testament in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. That is, invest in other people and treat them as if it was you. So if someone's in need of something, you think to yourself, what would I want if I was that person? I'd want someone to help me. That's what I'd want if I was in that situation. To be salt and light in the world is to embed in our lives a habit of helping others. That's what it means to love your neighbour as yourself and fulfil what Jesus wants from you as his disciple. Contribute to the decisions and actions we take as a community to serve others, and I mean here at the church, across culture. 
You see, when we start a ministry as a church, that's us as a group making a decision on how we are going to serve others. That's what we're doing. So we get together and collectively we think through problems and needs and we make a choice. We say together we're going to do this. That doesn't mean that everyone's involved in every single thing. But collectively that's what it means to be a member here, the church. We're thinking through what are the problems, what are the needs. We're making a decision and then we're taking action to serve other people. That's what we're doing. And we want as many people as possible to contribute to those decisions. See, sometimes we do sit there and think, how come we don't do this? How come we're not addressing this problem? I see a need. And so together as a church, we reflect on those things and we make decisions about what we're going to do. We want you to help in that. We want you to contribute to those decisions and actions. Be a a disciple of Jesus, not just on your own, but here at the church. And finally, attached to our actions and explanation of God, his love for all people and his message of hope to the world. Attached to our actions and explanation. So we've heard a lot about being good, being salt and light. But we want, to, we want to complete the journey. So when we do something and someone says, wow, thank you so much for being kind to me and oh, thank you for, 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 for forgiving me or I noticed that you're, you spoke really nicely to that person who, who said something awful to you. We say, yeah, well, um, look, I, I, I do that because I believe that there's a God who loves me and has actually treated me like that. Actually, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not naturally like that, but I'm, I'm trying to be a better person because God wants me to be a better person. That's why I'm trying to be a better person. I'm trying to be kinder to people because I'm trying to be like Jesus. And so we attach to our lives in the right way, in the right time, an explanation of why we do what we do. Radical witness. Well, the witness is the testimony part, the speaking part. The radical part, radical means a complete overhaul, a complete rebuilding of something. That's what makes it radical. And for us, the the complete rebuild, the complete change is when Christians speak God's truth but also live it and display it in their character and their lives. Let's come before God in prayer and then we'll take some questions. Father God, we just thank you so much for your son Jesus. Lord, we thank you for his character and his love, the way that he displayed that to us both in his life and also on the cross by giving his life for us. We thank you, Lord, that our sins can be forgiven and that we can become your people. But we recognize, Lord, that you ask us to live and behave a particular way. Lord, help us, strengthen us as a church and as individuals to fulfill our purpose as salt and light in the world, as a preserving influence of goodness in the world, and also, Lord, as an illuminating path that helps make you visible. Lord, help us to understand the great weight um, of this task, Lord. Help us to understand what's at stake. Give us strength, God. Help us to have humility to admit that we are not perfect, but, Lord, to pursue goodness because it pleases you and it helps people to see that you are a good, loving God. Help us, Lord, to know what real goodness is and to make sure that we do it. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, Thanks so much, uh, Pastor Abram, for that. Uh, The first question that we have is, uh, Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt after disobeying God's command. (laughs) 
she obviously became very valuable. Yes. Um, what is the significance of the salt here? Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt after disobeying God's command. What is the significance of salt here? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's certainly not to be put on fries. I don't think that would be, that's for sure. I'm not really sure I can uh, answer that fully. Um, I'd have to do a little bit of work uh, on that passage to sort of see whether there is that significance. I would say that, that it's... I'd say two things. Firstly... Salt is not necessarily used consistently all through Scripture to mean the exact same thing. So I don't believe that there is actually a connection between these usages of salt in Jesus' teaching and Lot's wife being turned to a pillar of salt. The second thing I would say is that in that passage, it's really a, a fulfillment or a connection with the, the judgment uh, upon Sodom and Gomorrah because it was turned to salt through the sulfur that was put down on the both uh, towns. So as part of this judgment, she'd kind of begun to leave and was outside of it. And in a sense, turning back, she becomes part of the, the judgment. Uh, she's, she's, she didn't escape it because she looked back to it. So I think that's the connection of why that happens to her. Um, it's really connecting and saying, yeah, well, she's looked back, she's tried to get away, but actually um, she, she disobeyed God. And so she experienced the same fate, if that makes sense. Uh, thank you. Uh, the next question is, great sermon, Pastor Abes. As uh, believers, how can we help one another individually and across the church community to grow to be more kind, more approachable, more caring to one another and non-believers so that we might be better examples of Christ's love, that others may see Jesus in us rather than our broken fallen selves. We have to enrol in Sonny's training, of course. It only takes 60 hours. Right? That's one of the things. Uh, I would say, um, I guess the other part of that uh, would be, could play out in the context of your life group. Um, as we spend more time with each other, uh, we get lots of practice in being kind uh, and listening to each other. And I think as, as people, as, as, as Christians, we need to be open to hearing from one another about ourselves. Uh, so I think that the best place to practice those qualities and develop those qualities are in the contexts of life groups, ministries, activities here, where you may experience conflict, uh, you may learn more insights into who you are, and then, of course, to be open to those things as we, we grow in those relationships. Uh, so there's heaps of opportunity for us to practice here. Um, I think that the... The, the bad thing would be if we just attend church and we're not involved in really anything at all, any relationships. We're just coming along and then we leave and we sort of isolate ourselves in that sense. My encouragement to you would be to really be involved in something here so that you actually have relationships, uh, so that you actually maybe experience a bit of conflict or difficulty because it's not always easy. And in that, find the opportunity to become kinder, warmer, more loving people. And that's going to be where we practice uh, and then we can take that with us uh, where we go. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much, Pastor Abram. That's all the questions we have time for. If you have more questions, please do come see Pastor Abram at the end of the service. Thank you. Thanks, Pastor Lou, and thanks all those two uh, for those questions. And feel free to come and ask me more questions after the service or pray for anything. Mm -hmm.